Elizabeth here on Eco Radio. I wanted to move on to emissions and uh, government statements about them. One of the most difficult things to get a handle on is the gap between what we're actually doing and what we need to do. Part of the difficulty is the size of the numbers when we start talking about gigabytes, uh, gigawatts, petawatts, and you know, trillions of tons, um, it just becomes a bewildering array of terms, terminology and units. And really there's a couple of simple graphs that just show the energy descent pathway that we need to engage in to meet our Paris targets is many, many, many times steeper than any efforts we're making to reduce our energy consumption. If you want to reduce it to personal terms, the average Aussie currently consumes about, or produces about 47 kilograms of carbon dioxide a day. So, you know, 47 kilograms of carbon dioxide doesn't sound like much, but when you multiply it by 25 million people, it's quite a lot. And so over a year, that's, you know, um, 16 tonnes per person. To meet the Paris, not the Paris target of 1.5 degrees warming, but the allowable top band of 2 degrees, we need to cut that by 7 eighths. So we need to reduce our emissions to 1 eighth of what they are now. And, you know, that just means a radical difference in our lifestyle. Now, some of us are pretty frugal, but we live in a country where we consume so much all the time. If you um, buy takeaway beer, you're buying it in packages. Those packages are the main source of emissions from whatever packaged drink you buy. Brewers and soft drink makers might use a lot of water. They use a reasonable amount of energy, but they use it pretty efficiently. The packaging uses much more energy than the making of the drink inside it. And so much more effective to sit in a bar and drink from a tap or, um, you know, drink shots out of a, a liquor bottle in terms of your emissions. Um, a lot of us ride bikes around rather than driving a car but even if you own a car the embedded emissions in that car are almost as much as 15 years use so what we use over the life of the car is about half of the emissions that it creates owning a car all of these things are part of our affluent lifestyle that we need to think about now the current government and the opposition are focused on decoupling the economy from emissions. Let's find clean energy. Let's make green hydrogen and use that to make steel so that we can buy a new car without worrying that about the emissions that it produces. So there's so much wrong with that view but it is nevertheless a widely held view. Those of you who remember listening to the interview I did with Ross Garno last year will remember that he believes fervently that we can decouple economic growth from environmental harm and has outlined, you know, put a lot of effort into outlining how we're going to do that. Um, now, 
we were talking about emissions and uh, the gap between what governments say they're going to do and what we need to do and how dire that gap is. Just wanted to clarify a few things about the current focus on hydrogen. So, um, when we burn carbon, coal or charcoal in a barbecue, we combine the carbon with oxygen to make carbon dioxide. When we burn hydrogen, we combine the carbon with hydrogen to make water. So even though water has a greenhouse effect, effect it's very short-lived. Water falls out of the atmosphere quite quickly. Carbon dioxide stays there for decades, if not centuries. So water is a greenhouse gas, but doesn't have the same kind of long-term effects that carbon does. Methane is also a greenhouse gas. It's carbon with a whole bunch of hydrogens around it. When we burn that, we combine it with oxygen and make carbon dioxide and water. Now, methane on its own is a terrible greenhouse gas. It's about 28 times as effective as carbon dioxide as warming at warming the planet. So if we have a bubbling swamp or a tip, a landfill full of food bubbling methane into the atmosphere, though that methane gas is creating a global warming effect 28 times more powerful than the same amount of carbon dioxide going into the air. When we burn that methane, we produce carbon dioxide, which of course blankets the earth, but it's actually less concerning than letting the methane go. When we extract methane from the ground through fracking, for example, and put it in bottles and send it off to other countries, we are extracting methane that was safely buried underground. Some of it leaks, so there are methane emissions from the process of mining methane. And then when it's burned, it releases carbon dioxide, which while it's not as bad as methane, is our primary greenhouse gas. So for Woodside Petroleum to be saying, as it claimed in the news stories today, which you can read in detail on ecoradio.net, Woodside Petroleum's claim is that the gas that it is extracting in the northwest and shipping off to Japan is the least emission-dense gas shipped to North Asia. It's got the lowest carbon intensity, is the official phrase. Now, carbon intensity means the amount of carbon or the amount of greenhouse gases measured in carbon dioxide equivalents that are produced in the production use of energy or in some other activity. So you might have the amount of carbon produced per dollar of GDP per millions of dollars of GDP. You might have the amount of carbon dioxide produced per unit of energy released, or you might have the amount of carbon dioxide or equivalent gases produced in the extraction of energy. So when Woodside say this is the lowest carbon density of gas exported, they're only talking about the greenhouse gases released in the extraction of the gas. They're not talking about the gases released in the burning of the gas. So to claim that gas, natural gas is somehow clean is a fiction. It might be cleaner than coal and it might be cleaner than certain other activities, but it's not clean. So that's methane. So methane is carbon and hydrogen. When we go to pure hydrogen... 
The advantage of hydrogen is that we are making water when we burn it. That's why it's cleaner than the other energy. The question comes about how do we make it. So we can produce hydrogen by taking methane and knocking the, getting rid of the carbon, using some energy to knock the hydrogen off the methane. Okay, but now you've got carbon left over, so you're still extracting carbon, unless you've got a way to bury it, to sequester it, which is, again, a fiction. We don't know how to do that. No one's doing it successfully. And as regular eco-radio listeners will know, one of the few successful carbon sequestration programs quoted by all coal companies and conservative politicians... They'd say, oh, there's 35 examples of carbon sequestration that are successful. One of them is SodaStream, actually putting carbon dioxide in aluminium bottles and shipping it all over the world. They're considering that to be a successful carbon dioxide sequestration program. Enough said. So, if we make hydrogen from methane, we are still releasing or we are still creating carbon as an excess product. If we make hydrogen from any fossil fuel or using any fossil fuel driven process, then we are um, ha we have carbon as a residual side effect. If that carbon is sequestered, then we're making what people call blue carbon. Pretty clean, a bit cleaner than dirty old uh, blue hydrogen, a bit cleaner than dirty old brown hydrogen. The only way, and the way that we want to start making hydrogen in the future, is to use renewable electricity. So we, Twiggy Forrester is building a huge solar panel photovoltaic cell plant in the northwest of Australia. Going to use the electricity from that plant to pump seawater, uh, then distill it either through membranes or by heating it up and capturing the steam and then putting the electricity through that distilled water to create hydrogen and oxygen so that we can then burn the hydrogen and the oxygen together and create heat to you know drive motor cars or melt you know iron ore and turn it into iron and so on so that is green hydrogen there is no um, emissions from the process of creating the hydrogen. If we're using hydrogen or hydrogen-based fuels to transport the hydrogen around the world, it's effectively a storage mechanism for the renewable energy that was used to create it in the first place. So in the same way that Snowy 2.0 is a hydro scheme storing renewable energy, so can Twiggy's green hydrogen be considered as a... Um, green storage mechanism for renewable energy. So that's what green hydrogen is. That's why it's desirable. We can use it to, um, you know, re to build new types of steel furnaces that engage in direct reduction, which means they don't need coal, don't need coking coal to um, harden and temper the, the steel. Um, and so that's the great glorious future. That's the decoupling of industrial processes from emissions. And that leads us to the final problem with that whole process. And that is that carbon emissions are only one of the many, many problems that we're facing. We've got energy depletion. We've got biodiversity loss. We've got water tables falling. We have um, 
a whole lot of impacts of global warming that are going to continue to go as we reduce carbon dioxide, and we're not doing it nearly fast enough anyway. So while it's really important that we get green hydrogen off the ground and it might decouple energy production from carbon emissions, it's not going to solve our overall environmental problems. That involves a serious degrowth of the economy, and that's what we have to get our head around. Anyway,